cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. The Bloomberg Sustainable Business Summit returns to London on April 25th for a solution-driven look at the sustainable business and finance landscape, looking at the latest trends in ESG regulations, supply chain innovation, and transition finance. Speakers include leaders from CDP, Emirates Environment Group, TNFD, C-Trace, COA, and more. Summit advisors include City and Schneider Electric. Visit BloombergLive.com slash SBS 2024 to learn more. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest, Hubert Jolie is the man who helped turn around Best Buy when they were floundering about a decade ago. The stock has since uh, returned 10x from when he joined as chairman and chief executive officer. He is the author of a fascinating new book, The Heart of Business, Leadership Principles for the Next Era of Capitalism. Um, he's really a fascinating guy, has an amazing background, both as a consultant from McKinsey and being on a number of different boards and, and running a number of different companies. Everybody who's looked at his work always puts him uh, amongst the best CEOs, top 100 this, top 30 that, really just a tremendous, tremendous track record. Uh, and I had a fascinating time speaking with him. I think if you're at all interested in anything involving leadership or the next era of capitalism or why the old school neutron jack approach to just firing everybody and, and cutting costs as a way uh, to restore profitability no longer works, you're going to find this to be a fascinating conversation. So with no further ado, my interview with Hubert Jolie. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week, my special guest is Hubert Jolie. He is the former chairman and chief executive officer of Best Buy. He is currently the senior lecturer on business at Harvard Business School. He is on the boards of directors at Johnson & Johnson and Ralph Lauren and has been named one of the top 100 CEOs by Harvard Business Review, one of the top 30 CEOs by Barron's, and one of the top 10 CEOs to work for in the U.S. by Glassdoor, Hubert Jolie, welcome to Bloomberg. Well, thank you, Barry. I very much look forward to our conversation. So let's start uh, with a little bit of your background. You've been the CEO of three major companies. Tell us about how that came about. Take us to the beginning or early days of your career. Yeah, Barry, I started my career with McKinsey and Company in France and then also in, in, in the U.S., Essentially, I didn't know what I wanted to do, so that I thought it'd be a great training ground, and I ended up staying a dozen years at, at the firm, done a great deal, and had wonderful opportunities to lead great companies. You know, at first, I left McKinsey to lead a client. It was EDS, uh, Electronic Data Systems, in France, 
And I ended up doing a, a number of turnaround and transformations of companies in uh, industry sectors that were challenged by technology. So in video games, in travel, and then, of course, ended up with Best Buy. And you know, I've ended up working in a variety of industry sectors, no specialization there. And every move was a move that was based on it was a, there was somebody with whom I had developed a relationship uh, that played a critical role. Uh, and so, for example, when I left uh, Vivendi Universal to become the CEO of Carlson Vagoni Travel, it was uh, the CEO of Accor, which was one of the two shareholders, had been a client of mine, and uh, you know we had stayed um, we had stayed friends. So, Barry, one of the key lessons is that you know try to minimize the number of people you annoy or irritate uh, along the way, and and try to focus on uh, doing a great job where you are, and then uh, you know I hope that God provides in the end, which is I think the, the lesson for me of my career. So, so I want to spend more time talking about your career, but I have to ask. How did you find yourself moving from France to the United States? What led to that, and what was that transition like? Because every time I'm in Paris, I always end up saying to myself, God, I could live here. (laughs) Yeah, thank you for that, uh, Barry. So the first time I moved to the U.S. was in 1985. It was with McKinsey & Company. I'd gone to school in France, and... There had been discussion of, you know, should I do an MBA in the U.S.? And after a while, McKinsey said, no, you really don't need to do that. But uh, if you want to spend time in the U.S., we'll send you to one of our offices. So I ended up uh, in the San Francisco office, uh, right the years where, where the Niners were at the top of their game, right? So that was quite uh, fascinating. And then the last time I moved to the U.S. was in 08, 2008, when I became the CEO of Calson Companies. So moved there from... Paris, France, to uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota. And, you know, I, I love France. I think it's a great country. I love the U.S. What I love about the U.S. is that, uh, you know, since Jefferson, we've been optimistic. There's been this dream of a better life. And there's this optimism. If, let me tell you, if, if in France, you know, you talk about a problem that has never been solved, people will say, well, who are you to talk about it? You know, nobody has been able to solve it, right? So, But in the U.S., if, if a problem has never been solved, it's, you know, immediately you're fancy. Oh, this is interesting. Let's see whether we can solve it. So I love this optimism in, in, in this great country, and I'm now a dual citizen there. Huh. Very, really, really interesting. So, so let's talk a little bit about how one becomes a good CEO. Is it effectively on-the-job training, or is it a function of your experience and, and ability that makes you a, a great leader? Yeah, there's a myth that you're born a leader. I think that every leader was born, of course, but none of us were born leaders. And I think it's a, it's a learning journey. And, uh, you know, for me, it's been you know, learning by doing, uh, learning on the job, learning from great mentors. One of the things I learned the most about it when I was at McKinsey was, you know, watching my clients lead. And I, I learned so much from a number of them. Uh, learning from colleagues, you know, at Best Buy, I learned so much from the frontliners and some of our great, uh, you know, executives, and then a coach. So let's slow down here. Can we agree, Barry, that exactly 100% of the top 100, uh, top 100 tennis players in the world have a coach? Sure. I think the same is true for the, all of the NFL teams, all of the, you know, Champions League uh, teams. What about us executives? Right? And so it's interesting that uh, now – for a CEO, a senior executive to have a coach is much more popular. But 10 or 15 years ago, not so much. And 
I've benefited enormously. My first coach was, uh, you know, the inimitable uh, uh, Marshall Goldsmith. Uh, I've t- learned a ton from him. He helped me deal with feedback and focus on getting better and asking for advice. And without Marshall, I would not be, you know, it is infomercials and the before and after picture. It's most improved. <laughs> Marshall Goldsmith was where? Was that at McKinsey or? Uh, it was the first time I worked with Marshall was in 2009. I had just became the uh, CEO of Calcium Companies and my head of HR, Elizabeth Bastoni, told me, would you like to work with a coach? And my first reaction was, Am I doing anything wrong? <laughs> Is there anything wrong with me? And she said, no, no, but you know, you, I know Marshall, he helps. You know, great CEOs get better. You know, some of his clients are, were at the time Adam Mullally or, you know, Ford and Jim Kim of the World Bank. I said, oh, that's cool. I want to be a member of that club. And Marshall was, was so helpful because when I was getting feedback, you know, you, you do a 360 and, mm-hmm. you know, you hear the good and then you hear the other part. And my uh, reaction traditionally was, what's wrong with them, right? <laughs> what, what are they talking about? And Marshall helped me, and the way he helped me was, uh, so he did the 360. He gave me first all of the good things that people had said, and so I said, Bert, spend the time to swallow this, you know, digest this. And then the next day he gave me the other stuff, and he said, here's the scoop. You don't need to do anything with it, right? There's no God that says that you need to get better at any of these things, but you can decide, you get to decide what you want to uh, uh, work on and get better at, right? And think about this. So here is a question that we could ask, right? Think about things that uh, you'd like to get better at, right? And if you cannot think about anything, try humility, right, <laughs> as a potential area. And, and then, you know, what Marshall made me do is talk to my team and say, thank you very much for all the feedback you've given me. And then based on what you've said, I have to say to work on three things, number one, number two, number three. And I'm going to follow up with each of you to ask you for advice on how I can get better at these, uh, these three things. And then a few months from now, I'll follow up to see how I'm doing. Now, believe me, Barry, first time I did this, this was excruciating pain. Having to admit to my team that I was not perfect, you know, <laughs> they knew it. They knew I was not perfect, but having to say it out loud that I wanted to get better at something, but this getting better at something makes it very positive. And, and then so later on, when I joined Best Buy, I, I, I repeated that, signaling to every one of the executives that it was okay to want to get better at something. And so later on, everybody at Best Buy had a coach, and we were all helping out each other on getting better at, at our job, which is you know what, what I think you need to do. So coaching, executive coaching played a key role in my life. Huh, very interesting. And and I recall seeing Marshall Goldsmith's name on a book, What Got You Here Won't Get You There, and a quick Google search shows me that, like you, he also is a professor. He teaches at Dartmouth's uh, Tuck School of Business and has, has quite an impressive CV. But I want to stick with the concept of, of coaching and mentors. What did you learn at McKinsey? Who helped you when you were there? sort of develop into the CEO that you are today? Yeah, so there was, for me, there was two phases, Barry, at McKinsey. There was uh, before the partnership and then the partnership. So in my first, let's say, six years, you know, as an associate and then a manager, I learned a lot about problem solving, communications, you know, certain functional matters and, and so forth. So you could say I learned a bunch of technical skills. But when I became a partner, the opportunity I got was... Uh, 
you know, uh, sit down next to the CEO of the clients, you know, watch them do their thing and listen and learn from them. And that makes so I got a great deal, right? Because they were paying us and I was learning from them, right? Couldn't get a better deal than that. And so I will always remember there was a, a client, you know, Jean-Marie Descarpentries, he was the CEO of, uh, of a computer company, Honeywell Bull. And this is the guy who told me about the, the purpose of a company is not to make money, right? It's an outcome, right? In, in, in business, you have three imperatives. You have a people imperative, you need to have the right teams. You have a uh, business imperative, you need to have customers or clients and then great products and services. And then there's a financial imperative. And of course, you have to understand that excellence on the financial imperative is the result of excellence on the business imperative, which itself is the result of excellence on the people imperative. So it's people, business, finance, and finance is an outcome. And by the way, it's not the ultimate goal, because if you think about a company as a human organization, a bunch of people working together, you know, they're, they're probably in there to create something in the world, right? And, we, you know, we can dig into this, but that's because, and believe me, that, that was 30 years before the BRT statement of, of 2019 that, uh, you know, we celebrated uh, in August, the second anniversary. And so then it was, you had practical implications around this. It's, when you do your monthly review with your team, start with people and organization. Don't start with financial results. If you start with financial results, you're going to spend your entire time on financials, and you want to understand what's driving these results. Whereas if you start with people and organization, you'll have a chance to spend time on that, then business, customers, products, and then the CFO will make sure that you'll spend enough time on, on the financial results. So that, for me, that was a game changer, and I applied this throughout my career, and you could say, you know, whether it was uh, in video games or in travel or hospitality or at Best Buy, you know, this focus on people first and treating profit as an outcome was, was a big driver of, of performance. And this is not, I've not smoked uh, anything illegal when I said this, Barry, you know, <laughs> as, you, as you know, that the share price of Best Buy went from, I think our low was $11, and, you know, recently it's been between 110 and 120 so, you know, time stand in nine years, that's, that's not bad. Maybe you could have done better, Barry, but, uh, you know, no, it's okay, I, I think. <laughs> I, I don't think I could have done better than 10X. And P.S., no longer legal in New York, so you could smoke whatever you like. We're going <laughs> to – by the way, those, those three steps that you just mentioned are right from the book, and we're going to talk a little more about the book in a few minutes. But before we get to that, I have one last question to ask you which has to do with the fact that Best Buy, you mentioned it's up 10x, it's a publicly traded company. Before you were at Best Buy, you were also at a giant company, but it was privately held. Tell us a little bit about what that transition was like, having to answer to shareholders in Wall Street. How, how did you manage that? Very different experience from everybody I've spoken with over the years. Yeah, Barry, so I've worked so in a public company, Best Buy. I've worked in a family-owned company, which was Calcium Company. I've worked in a partially private equity-owned company, Calcium Vagoni Travel. One equity partners uh, of J.P. Morgan was a 45% shareholder. And frankly, I think it's pretty much all the same. Mm-hmm. You know, you have shareholders, whether they're you know, large uh, entities like Fidelity or Wellington, uh, or it's a private equity player or it's a family, they have expectations and needs. And, and by the way, all of them are human beings, right, by the way. <laughs> I'm not focused on the, the you know, the, the uh, high-intensity uh, uh, trading. 
that uh, more the, the longs and, and or the shorts. They are human beings. And I've had, uh, even though I say profit is an outcome and it's not the ultimate goal, shareholders, even in stakeholder capitalism, are a very important stakeholder. You know, they're taking care of our, you know, they take care of our retirement. So we love them for that. And so uh, when I was uh, a CEO of Best Buy, I so enjoyed speaking, spending time with our shareholders, uh, sharing with them what we were doing, answering their questions. They're smart. I was always taking things away. Uh, and, you know, the key was pay attention, listen, uh, and then pay attention to the say-do ratio. Best Buy had lost its credibility because they were saying a lot but not doing much, right? Mm-hmm. So with, with my wonderful CFO, Sharon McCollum, we said, all right, we're going to say less and do more. And we, that's how we're going to build our credibility. And we would, you know, be very transparent, share our, our situation, the opportunities we saw, what we were going to do. And then we updated them on our progress. And so I, I really enjoy the conversation, but in many ways, Barry, I think public, private equity, or a family is largely the same. It's people, you have to respect them and take care of their needs. When cyber criminals strike, the difference between a catastrophic event and resilience is preparedness. Finance leaders who plan ahead can thwart the damage posed by ransomware. Yet in a recent EY poll, only 23% of directors expressed confidence in their organization's ability to respond to a ransomware attack. Cyber preparedness is just one facet of the complex risk landscape finance leaders face every day. Now more than ever, it's vital to keep ahead of developments. Cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. My extra special guest this week is Joubert Jolie. He is the former chairman and chief executive at Best Buy, a company that he helped turn around uh, over the course of his tenure there. Let, let's talk a little bit about that. If you would have asked me a decade ago what the future looked like for Best Buy, I would have said they were toast, that Amazon was going to eat their lunch, and, and they were heading to the, uh, to the garbage pile. Tell us what the key was to turning the company around so successfully. You're right. Everybody thought we were going to die. There was zero buy recommendation on the stock in 2012. And what I found as I was uh, examining the opportunity to become the CEO, because uh, my first reaction when I was approached was, you know, this is crazy, right? This is the same reaction as you described. But what I found is that uh, there was nothing wrong with the markets or the business out, uh, outside. Uh, all of the problems were self-inflicted. In fact, you know, customers needed Best Buy because we needed a place where to see and touch and feel the products and ask questions. And the vendors, importantly, needed Best Buy. They needed a place where to showcase their products, the fruit of their billions of dollars of, of R&D investment. The problems were self-inflicted. You know, prices were not competitive. The online shopping experience was terrible. Speed of shipping was you know, bad. The customer experience in the stores had deteriorated. The cost structure was bloated. And, and, and that's great news because if a problem is self-inflicted, you can fix it. Right. And so the first phase was all about fixing what was broken. 
And the advice I had been getting, uh, Barry, was cut, cut, cut. You know, you're going to have to close stores, cut headcount. We did the opposite. All of the stores were profitable. So, frankly, there was no point in closing right. stores in a, in, a, in a significant fashion. It was a very, the first phase was a very people-centric approach. Listening to the frontliners, my first week on the job, I spent it in a store in St. Cloud, Minnesota. Uh, I think in France we would say Saint Cloud, but over there they say Saint Cloud. So there you go. And really listening to the frontliners, they had all of the answers about what needed to be done. And so my job was uh, pretty easy: was do what they had to, to do what they said we needed to do, like uh, fix the website, make sure the prices were competitive, and, and, and so forth. The second element of you know the people centric build the right team at the top. And then instead of focusing on headcount reduction, focus on growing the top line by meeting the customer needs and fixing what was broken in the customer experience and treating headcount reduction really as a last resort. And then focus on mobilizing the, the team on what we need to do for the, for, for the customers. That sounds tough, but that was, you know, that was our opportunity, and that's what we did for the, the first two or three or four years. And then once we had saved the, the, the company, it was about – you know, how do we, you know, where do we go from here? How, what kind of company do we want to build for the future? And that's where we focused on defining our purpose as a company. We said, we're actually not a consumer electronics retailer. We're a company that's in the business of enriching lives through technology by addressing key human needs, which, you know, we'll, we'll talk more about this, but this was transformative because it's expanded our addressable market and helped us mobilize uh, everybody at the uh, at the company, we had to work on making this come to life in all of our activities and really creating an environment where, you know, I think the, the, the summary of the turnaround was we, we unleashed human magic. We had 100,000 people plus having a spring in their step, connecting what drives them in life with their job and doing, you know, magical things for, for, for customers. And frankly, Barry, I learned so much along the way. And again, all of this sounds tough, but go back to we went from eleven dollars to an antenna or hundred and twenty. That was the that was the key. To say the very least. So so let's talk a little bit about what you guys had done in the physical stores. You know, the big threat to Best Buy was was people showrooming, meaning showing up to look at a product and then buying it for a little cheaper at Amazon. How did you and this is a line from the book Quote, how did you kill showrooming and turn it into showcasing, unquote? Yeah, so everybody was talking about showrooming at, at the time. The, the frequency was not that high, actually. But, uh, of course, it was incredibly frustrating for the, uh, the Blue Shirt Associates in our store to spend time with you, know, with you Barry. You know, we love you, but we spent 30 minutes with you asking, uh, answering all of your questions about this TV, and then you buy it online. So... We, we, we uh, after 30 days at the company, we actually decided that we were going to take price off the table by aligning our prices with Amazon and giving the blue shirt the authority on the spot to match Amazon prices. And uh, so that took price off the table. Right. And the, the customers, once they were in our stores, they were ours to, um, uh, to lose. Now, Right. Wouldn't you want to drive home with your TV in the back of the car instead of waiting a couple of days for them to come from Amazon? Immediate gratification has to be a huge benefit you guys have as as the physical store. Exactly. And then, yes, of course, the investors told me, that's cute, but you're still going to die because your cost structure is too high. It's higher than 
Amazon or Walmart. So we did take $2 billion of cost out. Wow. But the way we, the way we won in the end was, was this uh, aha moment of, you know, this idea of showcasing. If you are Samsung or, you know, HP or even Amazon and Google now with products, you need a place where to showcase your products, right? Because you spend billions of dollars on R&D. Uh, and if it's just a, a vignette on a website or a box on a shelf, you know, you're not going to excite the customers. Right. So you need a place where to showcase your, your products. And so we did deals. The first one was with Samsung, where we had a meeting in December of 2012, Barry. Uh, Jake Asin, the then CEO of Samsung Electronics, came to visit us in, in Minneapolis in December of 2012. And, in, and in, over dinner, we did a deal where, in a matter of months, he would have 1,000 Samsung stores within our stores where he could showcase his products. It was just across the aisle from we already had an Apple store within the store, right. and it was good for the customer because they could see the products, they could compare with Apple. It was good for Samsung, right, because the alternative for them was, was to build 1,000 stores in the U.S. It takes time, it's difficult, you know, and, and, of course, we have this great location and great traffic. And good for us because it was part of our OPM strategy, other people's money strategy, right? Of course, mm-hmm. there was some good economics for us. And so that allowed us to um, offset, you know, the cost advantage that a Walmart or, or an Amazon would have. And then over time, we did deal with all of the you know, world's foremost tech companies, including Amazon, for crying out loud. Um, and that was a game changer. And we look, if you look at our stores today, you know, they're, they're, they're shiny because they, you have all of these shiny objects and you can see and experience all of these products. So that was really a game changer. So let's let's talk a little bit about both Samsung and Amazon. First, I, I'm always surprised that people don't realize what a giant product company Samsung is. It's not just phones, but it's phones, it's TVs, it's washers, dryers. I mean, Samsung, basically uh, anything in your house is a product that Samsung makes, and not just entry-level washer dryers or refrigerators. I think, was it last year or two years ago, they bought Decor, which is like a sub-zero, high-end um, manufacturer of, of kitchen appliances. So when you set up the store within a store with Samsung, tell us about what that did and how did that impact Samsung's sales at Best Buys? So, yes, I mean, you're right to highlight this, uh, this great company. The first deal we did with them was focused on phones and tablets, uh, and cameras. So in, in, a, in a matter of months, they had these, you know, stores within our stores, and it really put them on the, uh, on the map. But it's interesting, if you go back to the 90s, Samsung was not the same company. They were really low-end. And the, the chairman at the time, so the, the father of, uh, of the current, of J.Y. Lee now, came to the U.S. and said, at some point, I want I wanted Best Buy to carry us. That would be the ultimate goal. And now they're one of our top five vendors, probably better than top five. And so uh, it really gave them this physical presence. And the proof that it worked for them was that then we did the same in the TV department and then the, in the appliance department. So it's been a, uh, a series of, uh, of wins for them. And once we had announced the... Uh, the, the deal with Samsung, other vendors, we had this, similar conversation with, you know, uh, uh, Microsoft, 
uh, Steve Ballmer, we had a conversation at CES, and a few months later we did the, the Microsoft stores within Best Buy. And, and, and then it, it went on and on. And, and uh, you know, Tim Cook at Apple told me that um, he didn't really like what we were doing. He understood it, but he didn't really like it, frankly. And Apple has been a, a very important vendor to, to Best Buy. So what we decided to do with them is do more. And so there was a stronger partnership. So Best Buy is just not, it's not simply carrying products. It partners with the world's foremost tech companies. And it, with some of these companies, it partners on product development, new product introduction. Uh, and, and because there's so much innovation that drives the business, it's, it's a critical role we, uh, we play. We also partner in service. Best Buy sells Apple Care and is an authorized uh, Apple uh, service provider. So these partnerships really change the game. And in the U.S., uh, I think it's not arrogant to say that Best Buy is the only player with which you know, these large companies can do these meaningful uh, deals. So they've really changed the, uh, the trajectory. You know, I have to ask you about the Geek Squad. Whose idea was that, and how significant is it to, to the company? So Robert Stevens, uh, who was a student at the University of Minnesota, uh, was the, is the founder of, of, uh, of Geek Squad in 1994, a very creative guy. The, the name itself is good, is cool, the logo and, and so forth. And, and then Best Buy acquired the company in 2002, and it was quite, still quite small. And now, of course, it's, uh, it's, it's become really big. It's 20,000 employees. And, and it's wow. a key element of Best Buy's differentiation because, you know, Best Buy is not just in the business of selling you something. Where our target customer are people who are, you know, excited about technology, need technology, but also need help with it. And so with the Geek Squad and, and the Blue Shirts, we're able to advise you when you're looking at what to do, but to also help you implement it in your home, help you, uh, you know, figure out if it's, something is not working across a variety of products. Let's take an example. If, if Netflix is not working tonight <laughs> at your house, Barry, is it because of Netflix? Is it the pipe into the home? Is it the router? Is it the streaming device? Is it the TV? Honey, what is it, right? And we are honey. All right, and we're going to be able to help you across all of these vendors, and so that's a big differentiator for uh, for the, the the company. So, really genius. My extra special guest this week is Hubert Jolie. His new book is called "The Heart of Business." Let's talk a little bit about writing a book, which is quite an endeavor. What what motivated you to sit down and say, "Sure, I'll write a book." <laughs> Well, this is not a traditional CEO book. And so this is not a memoir. This is not about the, the, the story of the Best Buy turnaround per se. It was, it was a reflection, Barry, and it's really been something that I've been thinking about for the last 30 years. But so much of what I've learned at business school, what McKinsey or in the early years of my career is wrong, dated, or incomplete. And, you know, when I step back today, or in the last couple of three years, you know, even though I'm the eternal optimist, I have to say it out loud. The world as we know it is not working, right? We're in this multifaceted crisis. You have, a, of course, a health crisis, an economic crisis, societal issues, racial issues, environmental problems, geopolitical tension. It simply is not working. And what's the definition of madness, right? It's uh, doing the same thing and hoping for a different outcome. And for me, on my FBI uh, most wanted list, there's two people. You know, one is Milton Friedman, you know, shareholder primacy. And two is Bob McNamara, the you know, former Secretary of Defense, 
uh, an executive at Ford who's the, almost the, the inventor of top-down scientific management. These approaches don't work, and I think they got us in, in trouble. And there's a growing number of us, right? I'm certainly not the only one who believes that uh, there's a better formula that business can be a force for good, that, uh, you know, it's the idea that, you know, business should pursue a noble purpose uh, and, and take care of all of the stakeholders, that you put people at the center, you embrace all stakeholders in some kind of declaration of interdependence. There's no need to choose between, you know, employees and customers and shareholders. It's by taking care of customers and employees and, and, and the community that you generate great returns for shareholders. You treat profit as an outcome. And this formula, you know, people call it stakeholder capitalism or purposeful leadership. I, I think everybody now talks about it and embraces the idea. Most people, there's still a few <laughs> who disagree. Uh, but the, the challenge then is how do you do this? How do you make this happen? And Barry, I felt that with my experience uh, and, and the credibility of the Best Buy turnaround, I could add my voice and my energy to what I call this necessary foundation of business and capitalism around purpose and humanity and provide like a guide for a, uh, any leader at any level, frankly, who is keen to move in that direction, but you know, like the rest of us needs help. And so that was the genesis of the, uh, of the book. And, and the subtitle of the book is Leadership Principles right, for the Next Era of, of Capitalism. And the book is full of very concrete examples and stories and illustrations there's questions at the end of each chapter that people can use to, to reflect and, and act at their, at their company. So that's the, that's the book. When cyber criminals strike, the difference between a catastrophic event and resilience is preparedness. Finance leaders who plan ahead can thwart the damage posed by ransomware. Yet in a recent EY poll, only 23% of directors expressed confidence in their organization's ability to respond to a ransomware attack. Cyber preparedness is just one facet of the complex risk landscape finance leaders face every day. Now more than ever, it's vital to keep ahead of developments. Cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. Uh, speaking of the book, it, it got a terrific review from, all of all people, Amazon's Jeff Bezos. How did that come about? How did Bezos give you a review? And what's the relationship like between Best Buy and uh, Amazon these days? So Best Buy has always sold Amazon products. Of course, we think about Amazon as a retailer, of course, as a cloud company. But Amazon is also a product company right there. They've had um, you know, the Kindle and, of course, all of their Echo products. And Best Buy has always sold you know, Amazon's products in the stores. Other retailers decided otherwise, but... We thought these were great products, and we're here to serve um, uh, customers. I got to know Jeff personally through the business council. Both of us were members there on the executive committee, and once I was invited to uh, discuss our turnaround uh, uh, and how we had approached that transformation, and Jeff was in the first row and and, and you know being very kind. But then we did this uh, significant partnership 
where I think it was in 2018, uh, Amazon gave Best Buy the exclusive rights to the Fire TV platform, which is their smart TV platform, to be embedded into smart TVs. And any smart TV with the Fire TV embedded in it, uh, Best Buy is going to control that. It's only going to be sold at Best Buy or by Best Buy on Amazon. And when we did the announcement for this deal, uh, we did it in a, in a store in Bellevue, Washington, and, and Jeff came and we had some media there. Uh, and, you know, Jeff said, look, <laughs> a TV is a considerate purchase. You, you got to see the TV. Best, you know, Best Buy is the best, best place in the world where you can do this. That's why we're doing the, the partnership. And, you know, we've built this trust-based relationship. And, of course, the media, was, this was a jaw-dropping moment. And Jeff is a very generous man. It's, it's interesting because it raises another question, which is, how do you think about competition? As you lead a company, do you obsess about competition or do you obsess about your customers and what you can become? And, and that's one of the things that uh, Jeff and I share, which is you, you're obsessed about your customers and becoming the best version of yourself you can be. Of course, at Best Buy, we looked at Amazon we wanted to we actually, in a sense, we neutralized them, right? Because same prices, same great shopping experience that we ship as fast as they do. So let's call it a draw on the online business. And then we have our unique assets. And so you're not, you don't obsess about your competition. In fact, in some cases, you, 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 you partner with them. And uh, I think the world, and other than the COVID pandemic, there's another pandemic in the world, which is the, the fear or the obsession about zero-sum games. Mm-hmm. You know, the only way that Amazon could win is if Best Buy loses or vice versa. Or the only way this podcast can be successful, Barry, is if you win and I lose. That's crazy, right? You get to collaborate and create great outcomes. Uh, and I think in this world, as leaders, we have to think about how we can create win-win-win outcomes for our customers, our employees, our vendors, the community, and ultimately the, the, the shareholders. And to put some flesh on those bones, some numbers on it, in 2007, before the financial crisis, Best Buy had done about $35 billion in revenue. In 2020, they were somewhere in the neighborhood of $47 billion. And this year, uh, I think the company is looking for an excess of $50 billion. So clearly, that's been heading in the, in the right direction. Let's talk a little bit about your experience on other boards uh, you're on the board of directors of Johnson & Johnson, and we're on the board of directors at Ralph Lauren. What have you learned from those firms that were applicable to Best Buy, and what do you bring to the table for those companies? Yeah, so, the, so I joined, the first board I joined was Ralph Lauren in 2009, and I was the CEO of Calcium Companies, which was, you know, Calcium Company Travel, TGI Fridays, and then a bunch of hotels, Regent and, and Radisson. The reason why I was interested in joining uh, another board was to try to become a better CEO in the relationship with my board. And sitting on somebody else's board, you can see the needs of the board, and then you can see how the CEO and, and their team are dealing with you. So that was a great uh, experience because when you become CEO and you deal with a board, you have zero experience right, dealing with a board. <laughs> so that's one of the things you learn on the job. So that was a great way for me to uh, to learn. And these two companies, J&J and Raffo, and they're two uh, amazing companies, you know, J&J. I joined recently, I joined about 18 months ago. And so watching uh, Alex Gorski uh, and his team navigate uh, the pandemic, their credo-based approach, I mean, they're, they're, they're the inventor of stakeholder capitalism before it had a name, right, with their credo that they're created in 1943 that's focused on all of the stakeholders. 
They're one of the most innovative companies, so they, they show the value of in, doing meaningful innovation for the benefit of, uh, you know, in their case, their patients. You know, this is a wonderful entrepreneur company. It was founded in '67, and it's a great uh, company. It's one of the most iconic brands on the planet. So, how do you drive this, and how do you balance left brain and, and right brain? And of course, enjoying cooperating with uh, Patrice Louvet, the, the CEO, who's a terrific guy. And so, you know, learning. You know, I'm like a sponge. I love to learn from others. What I bring, I, I would frame it along the lines of what I was. Uh, looking for my board to do when I was CEO. And I was not looking for the board to give me all of the answers and do my job, right? But uh, I used the board. I wanted I built a board that would uh, give me complementary skills. So I wanted to have the best people on the board that would have skills that would be additive to our management team and use the board as a sounding board. So I would get 80% of the value of a board meeting in the preparation to the board meeting. And then, you know, getting reaction, the sounding board, you know, when you're in the weeds, sometimes you, you're missing something. And then being able to access, you know, unique expertise uh, from, from our board. So, you know, what I try to bring on these boards is uh, I try to be a resource for the management team, a sounding board, um, and, and helping them with their most uh, important issues. I, I really enjoy that. I'm at a stage now, I've studied a new chapter, as you've highlighted, I'm no longer a, a CEO, but I... It's a matter of giving back and helping the, the next generation of leaders, you know, be the become the best version of themselves they can be. So I do that through boards and through executive education at Harvard Business School. I also coach and mentor a number of CEOs and executives. So it's uh, I, I just love doing that. So let's talk a little bit about um, what you're doing now. Tell us about the class you're teaching at Harvard. So on Monday, uh, August 30th, uh, that's, uh, that was the first day of school for the uh, incoming MBA uh, class. So I'm, I'm a, one of the professors in the first year. I teach marketing, uh, which is about focus really on how do you grow a company focusing on the customers. So that's one of the things I do. I, I'm also part of the faculty that uh, as a program for new CEOs. So twice per year, we have a, uh, a small bunch of uh, new CEOs that uh, I did this when I became CEO that come here for three days, and we try to help them out. I'm also part of the faculty that's uh, doing a program called Leading Global Businesses. And last but not least, I'm really passionate about this. We're designing and we're going to pilot a program four companies, and then also in the MBA program called Putting Purpose to Work and Unleashing Human Magic, right? So many companies are on this purpose journey today. And so uh, it's going to be a series of workshops for the top 30 people's custom programs, one company at a time, and we're going to try to support them in their journey. We're doing our first pilot this fall and uh, look forward to uh, learning from that experience and and I think we're just in the early innings of that new era of capitalism. So, so much to learn. I'm super excited to be part of that journey with a number of, uh, of companies. Hmm. Quite, quite interesting. I have to ask you the obvious question. Is your book a book you assign to your students? What What do you have them read? Uh, the uh, So, HBS is a school where there's really not, for the most part, mandatory reading of any books. So I know that last year, before the book was published, my uh, wonderful Section E from the, the MBA program, they all got a copy of the manuscript, and we had great conversations. So uh, sometimes the book gets distributed, yes, to the participants of the executive education programs, but in the MBA, there's little uh, mandatory reading. It's, it's all about the, uh, 
as you know, the case study methodology, mm-hmm. which is a, a wonderful way to, to learn, because it's hard to learn just from reading. Reading, I mean, I encourage people to read the book for sure, but it's by practicing that you really learn, right? Uh, so that's the, that's the uh, HBS way. Huh. To, to say the, the very least. And, and one of the things that Bezos specifically mentioned was that he thought your turnaround at Best Buy was going to eventually become a Harvard Business School case study. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, we're actually working on that with Professor Gupta, and uh, it's going to be taught for the first time. This is going to be fun, right? This is going to be the, the last case of the marketing class in December, and so, of course, in my section, it's going to be ironic. I'm going to be Professor Jolie, and I'm going to be one of the protagonists. There's been other cases on Best Buy, but this one is going to be very much on the uh, on the turnaround and, and, and transformation. So that's going to be fun. And I've also taught it. We've also taught it in uh, some of the executive education uh, uh, programs. So Jeff, as always, Jeff is right. There is a Best Buy case now at uh, Harvard Business School. Hmm. Really, really quite interesting. So you mentioned purposeful leadership. Let's delve into that a little bit. How does one become a purposeful leader who's focused on creating the sort of environment where others can flourish and perform at their best? Yeah, this is, for me, such a, uh, an important transformation. And, and point. I grew up believing that as, a, as the leader, what was important was to be smart, right? We all went to school and, and to some of the best schools in, in the early years of our career. You know, this is uh, the left brain is what's highlighted being the smartest person in, in the room. I've learned over the years that this is not what drives you know, great outcomes uh, uh, over time. And I've had a, an entire reflection. And, and if we slow down, you know, th- th- one of the things that I think is important to do is reflect on why do we work? You know, is work, work has a mixed reputation, right? We work, is work a punishment because some dude sinned in paradise, right? Or is work something we do so that we can do something else that's more fun? Or is work part of our fulfillment as a human being, part of our quest for meaning, right? To talk about Viktor Frankl. And, you know, one of the things that uh, I really invite uh, myself to do and every leader to do is reflect on this. What's going to be the, the meaning of my life professionally? How do I want to be remembered? One of the things we ask the CEOs to do in the new CEO program at Harvard is uh, write your retirement speech. Huh. Or w- with my wife, when, I, when we coach or mentor CEOs, we ask them to write their uh, eulogy. What would you like other people to say on that day when you're not here to listen? And I think this is so meaningful because people talk about the purpose of the corporation. I think it starts with our individual purpose, right? Because motivation is intrinsic, right? And so... How can you lead others if you cannot lead your life and, and, and yourself? For me, that's the, uh, that's the beginning. And very practical. Uh, one of the turning points in our journey at Best Buy Barry was uh, you know, every quarter we would get together as an executive team for an offsite. And one day, I asked every one of the executive team members to come to the offsite with a picture of themselves when they were little, maybe <laughs> two or three years old. We got some really cute pictures back, I can tell you that. And over dinner, we spend the evening sharing with each other our life story and what drives us in life. What's the meaning of our life? And, you know, what came out of that discussion, you know, several things. One is we realized that all of us were human beings, duh, not just a CFO or CMO or CHO. Uh, and that's with a couple of exceptions, all of us 
at the same kind of goals in life, which is, is the golden rule. Do something good to other people. And that was very transformational because we said, well, we're the executive team of Best Buy. And at that time, Best Buy, you know, we had saved Best Buy. And it was, where do we go from here? Said, Why don't we use Best Buy as a platform to do something good in the world and be, become a company that customers are going to love, employees are going to love, community is going to love, and, of course, shareholders are going to continue to, uh, to love. And so there's a seminal idea in my mind, which is connecting what drives us as individuals with the purpose of the company. And the, the thing is, for companies that are embarked on the purpose journey, they write down their purpose, but if they just try to cascade it down and communicate it to everybody and say, why aren't you, why aren't you excited about this new purpose? <laughs> it doesn't work. You really have to start with what drives every individual at the company. And then you realize that, yes, what is your role? So in the book, I talk about the five Bs of purposeful leadership. The first B is be clear about your, what we were talking about. Be clear about your own purpose. Be clear about the purpose of people around you and how it connects with you know, what you're doing at the company. The second one is be clear about your role as a leader. You know, it's not to be the smartest person in the room. It's to create the environment in which others can, you know, be the best version of, uh, of, of themselves. And, of course, you know, if you're leading a, a significant company, that's by, you know, more than 100,000 people, the only thing that happens is things that you decide that you come up with, you're not going to go far, right? So it's all about creating this environment. So it's a significant mind shift. It's so, also about – yes, Barry. I was going to say, you know, I'm struck by your comments, and this comes through the book, about showing vulnerability, inspiring people, embracing your humanity. I think back to the former CEO of General Electric, Jack Welsh, whose nickname was Neutron Jack for how frequently he would lay off people and close divisions and fire uh, other executives. When, When you were putting your philosophy to work at Best Buy, were you aware that this is a radical break from what had come before you? Yes. And to quote, so to go back to France in 1789, at the moment of the, the storming of the Bastille, there's a, Louis XVI asked Monsieur de la Rochefoucauld, is this a revolt? And Monsieur de la Rochefoucauld's response says, no, sire, this is a revolution. <laughs> and I think that's what it is. And uh, it's, it's really shifting things. You know, people are not the problem. They're the source. And they're also the ultimate goal. And I think that most people agree with this, Barry. The, the challenge is not agreeing with this now. I think it's really doing it. And it's, uh, I, I can speak from experience. If you were to look at my face, you would see all of the scars on my face. You know, learning from experience and trying to get better at this is a lifelong uh, journey of learning to be vulnerable. You know, I was raised being taught that, I, you know, you couldn't say, I don't know. And now, huh. in the world we live in, did you have a manual for the COVID pandemic? Did you, did you have a manual for back to the office? <laughs> no. So it's clear that we don't know. So yeah, we have to be able to say, my name is Hubert, and I need help, and we're going to work together to figure it out. So that's a sea change in leadership, leading from a place of purpose and with humanity and a great deal of humility. When cyber criminals strike, the difference between a catastrophic event and resilience is preparedness. Finance leaders who plan ahead can thwart the damage posed by ransomware. Yet in a recent EY poll, only 23% of directors expressed confidence in their organization's ability to respond to a ransomware attack. 
Cyber preparedness is just one facet of the complex risk landscape finance leaders face every day. Now more than ever, it's vital to keep ahead of developments. Cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. So I want to talk about the pandemic in a moment. I want to stick with this revolution that you mentioned. There's a quote from the book that I really like. Quote, the Milton Friedman version of capitalism got us here, but now this model is failing. Explain to us how it got us here, why it's failing now, and, and what comes next. I use this to highlight the idea, which may or may not have been Milton Friedman's only idea. There was context when he spoke, but the, the obsession with profit being the only thing that matters has proven to be poisonous. And, and an excessive focus on profits is poisonous. And there's several reasons for this. One is when you look at the the, the, the reported profit of, of the company, by the way, if anybody believes that U.S. GAAP really tries to <laughs> equate economic performance, you know, study accounting again. It's not even trying. It's a set of principles. There's many things that uh, uh, GAAP profit does not capture, including, you know, your negative impact on the environment or how well your sales force is trained. The other thing is that it focuses on an outcome. So in medicine, it'd be a little bit analogous if my MD was focused on my temperature, right? And mm-hmm. I don't want a doctor that's purely focused on my temperature because maybe he's going to put the thermometer in the fridge or in the oven, right, depending. I want somebody who's going to be interested in what's driving my health and try to help me get healthy. And so we got confused by this obsession, and that was the only thing that mattered. And, of course, there's extreme cases you know, Enron is one of them, but uh, where, where we lost track of w- why we're on this planet and, and our responsibility uh, with, with doing the right, uh, the right thing. So this new model is a reinvention of business, probably going back to some of our roots, right, with the idea that uh, business is here to pursue a noble purpose. Uh, and this is not about socialism. This is about doing something good in the world that's going to be responding to needs of customers in a way that's responsible. It's about putting people at the center, embracing all of the stakeholders in a harmonious fashion, uh, refusing zero-sum gains, and treating profit uh, as an outcome. I think that's the formula. Uh, that's the formula that's employed by some of the best you know, companies on the, on the planet. And as leaders, we need to go back to that and, and learn you know, new things, because we're so influenced by, you know, some of the techniques we learned last century, including this top-down management approach and using incentives. So that's another thing I learned over time. There's research by the MIT that shows that financial incentives deteriorate performance, which is the opposite of what we've learned, right? But if you you treat somebody with carrots and sticks, beware, because you're going to get a donkey, right? (laughs) And in a world where you need creativity and people to be their best, motivation is going to be intrinsic. So that's what you need to be able to touch and get create an environment where people want to be their best, you know, and, and make a meaningful contribution in, in their in their work. So 
I think this is a very exciting phase. This is an urgent phase because I'm concerned, probably like you and many others, that uh, we have a few ticking time bombs, you know, and uh, three wonderful granddaughters. Uh, I want to do my best to try to, quote-unquote, save the planet, frankly, to leave a better world, right, that, uh, than, than the current trajectory. And, and this is very consistent. You know, I, I have a fuller understanding of of your philosophy that profit should be an outcome and not just the goal in and of itself. You've really put some some meat on those bones. Yeah, thank you, Barry. And, and there's practical implications of that. Uh, again, then I'm studying your monthly business meetings or your, even your board meetings with people and organization and then customers and business and then finish with financial results. You know, the, 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 if you take care of the first two, you know, the, the profits will, um, will, will, will follow. And uh, so it's a, it's a significant uh, practical and philosophical transformation. Uh, you know, talking about quotes, you, we quoted Milton Friedman, but uh, I, I love this quote from the Lebanese poet Khalil Gibran, who said that work is love made visible. Hmm. That's a wonderful quote. Um, and let's talk a little bit about visibility of some of the changes you, you did. By the time you stepped down from the board of directors uh, in June of last year, Best Buy's board of 13 directors had, for the first time ever, a majority of women and three African-American directors. Tell us how you brought about this increase of diversity uh, what about diversity throughout the rest of the company, and what was the impact of so much inclusion and, um, you know, a shift away from the older, homogenous types of boards? I think, uh, Barry, it's clear for every one of us today that uh, having diverse teams is going to get to a better business outcome. And, you know, I, I do believe that if it had been Lehman Brothers and Sisters instead of Lehman Brothers, we would have had a different <laughs> outcome. But if you also take it in a very practical fashion, in one of our stores in Chicago that's in a Polish neighborhood, if the blue shirts don't speak Polish, you know, they're not going to sell much. Right. Or in, when we had Brazilian tourists in Orlando, you know, if the blue shirts didn't speak Portuguese, you know, they were not going to sell much. So having diversity of, you know, every dimension, talent, skills, profiles, gender, race, you know, the country's color is changing very rapidly. It's becoming mm -hmm. black and brown. And we have to represent, it's very simple, we have to represent the, the diversity of the customers we, we serve. If we don't, bad things happen. It's, a, it's, it's very clear. So there's a business imperative. There's also a moral imperative, you know, when we see the, the, the state of the country. Also from a gender standpoint, as I said, I have three granddaughters. I want them to have the best uh, opportunities and why would it make sense to only recruit from a quarter of the population? <laughs> That'd right. be stupid. And right. the the board's uh, I felt the board's composition was a great place to focus on. It's not the only one. When we rebuilt the board starting in 2013, we, we wanted to have the best skills. We were determined to be diverse, uh, so we we had an early focus on gender diversity. And then when I started to focus more on ethnic diversity, probably starting in 2016, 2017. I met at a great meeting with Melody Hobson, as you know, the, the, of, of Aerial Investment, and she's sure. now the chair of Starbucks. Everybody knows Melody. She's amazing. Uh, and one thing she told me is that people cannot be who they cannot see. And so starting at the top and having a board that would signal the direction was important. So 
You know, what we did, and changing the composition of a board is not that hard. It's only 10 or 12 or 13 people. How hard can it be? So we told the headhunter, don't bother giving us resumes of non-black directors, right? And if you believe that you're unable to find great black uh, candidates, we'll say, that's okay. We won't have a problem with that. We'll just work with another firm, you know? It's not a problem. (laughs) (laughs) And so we recruited three amazing directors and, now I'm no longer on the board, but they, they've continued in this direction, and, and, and uh, I think it makes a huge difference. And of course, you know, Best Buy is headquartered in Minneapolis, and you know, following the, the killing, uh, the murder of George Floyd, you know, it, it's pretty simple. If you, you know, if, if the city is on fire, right? If the community is on fire, you just can't open stores, right? You can't run a business. Right. So in this country, we have this big racial issue that has been going on for centuries. I think this generation has the opportunity to end systemic racism, uh, and that's something we, uh, I think, business can can play a big role in this. So that's, uh, you know, I, I was determined, and that's what we did. Let's jump to our favorite questions that we ask all our guests, starting with, tell us what you're streaming these days. Give us your favorite Netflix or Amazon Prime. What What's keeping you entertained uh, during the pandemic? You know, I have so much electronic equipment in, 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 in our place that uh, I'm doing a lot of streaming. I love, I always listen to music. I'm a movie buff. I have a collection of probably 800 uh, movies on my Kaleidoscape, you know, uh, setup. Uh, our favorite show, uh, I would say, recently has been, uh, you know, Good Doctor. I think that's, uh, uh, season five is starting at the end of September. We're very excited about this. And then from a podcast standpoint, I like listening to... Uh, HBR's uh, IdeaCast, that's a weekly, a great weekly podcast. Uh, Whitney Johnson has got a great leadership podcast called uh, Disrupt Yourself. Oh, and then I have to mention, there's a young teenager, well, teenager would be young anyway, right? But uh, let's call him a teenager. Logan Lynn has got a Finance Z podcast that's focused on the Z generation. Oh, my God, the guy is so cool. So everybody, everybody joins and, and downloads Finance Z, spelled F-I-N-A-N. Z-E, and that's Logan Lynn. Huh, quite interesting. We hinted at um, some of your mentors, but let's let's jump into that in more depth. Tell us some of the people who helped to shape your career. Oh, there's so many, Barry. You know, uh, Jean-Marie de Carpentier, a client of mine, had this big influence uh, on me, uh, teaching me so much about how to put people first and treating profits as an outcome. There was two great friends, oh yes, <laughs> uh, who, who happened to be monks in a, in a religious congregation in, in the early 90s. That was a turning point. They asked me to write a couple of articles with them on the theology and, and philosophy of work, which is where I got a lot of my uh, roots in terms of uh, you know, work as part of our search for meaning as, as uh, individuals, as human beings. That changed my perspective on um, on, on work. Uh, another turning point. So, you know, the, in, in the, my early forties, you could say to quote Arthur Brooks, I was at the top of my first mountain. Right, I'd been a partner at McKinsey and Company. I was on the executive team of Vivendi Universal. By many measures, I'd been successful. Right, except I think the top of that first mountain was very dry. You know, which was not fulfilling. There was no. No real meaning. So we call that my midlife crisis, right? So instead of going on to an island, I did. Uh, I stepped back and I did the spiritual exercises of Ignatius of Loyola, 
So you could say the founder of the Jesuits, of course. You could say he was one of my mentors. And it was really helpful to help me discern my calling in life, which today, well, since then, has been to try to make a positive difference on people around me and use the platform I have to make a positive difference in, uh, in, in the world, which is what I'm doing now, teaching and mentoring and, 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 and so forth. And then we, we mentioned Marshall Goldsmith, my first coach and uh, good friend. Uh, later on, I also worked with Eric Kleiner at YSC. When, when the board, uh, so Marshall was doing my annual, uh, helping the, the board with my annual evaluation, and the board realized that Marshall and I were such good friends and said, now, we need somebody more objective now. <laughs> and we got Eric Kleiner, who's now the CEO of uh, YSC, work with me, but also his firm worked with every one of our executives and helped us with uh, our executive team effectiveness. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, that was quite transformative. Uh, you know, it should have spent more time earlier on, not just on building the right team, but enhancing our team effectiveness. And I learned a lot working with Eric uh, in, that, uh, in that journey. Let's talk a little bit about everybody's favorite question. Tell us about uh, some of your favorite books and, and what are you reading right now? I read three books this summer. The first one is by Rakesh Karana, who's now the president of Harvard College, and it's called From Higher Aims to Hired Hands, which is the history, fascinating for me, the history of business education in the U.S. over the last 120 years and, and how you know, the, the business school curriculum was shaped and, how, you know, and why he believes, and I do believe uh, as well, that we need to evolve it past just learning techniques, but also it's not just about learning you know, something or learning to, to do something. It's also learning to be, uh, which is, uh, I think, an entire journey. I also read, uh, you know, Cast by Isabel Wilkerson and uh, a book by my colleague, Tzedal uh, Neely, Remote Work Revolution, which is, of course, a very uh, timely uh, timely book. Best book ever I've ever read. I have to mention uh, Marcel Proust being French, you know, In Search of Lost Time. It's only 3,000 pages, so if you have a minute or two, <laughs> I encourage you to, to to get to it. Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning is another favorite. And you mentioned uh, Marshall Goldsmith's What Got You Here Won't Get You There. And finally, I have to mention my wife's book called Aligned, Becoming the Leader You're Meant to Be. And her name is Hortense Legentier. It's one of the best leadership books uh, that I've ever read. But of course, I'm a little bit biased, maybe. <laughs> maybe a little bit biased. Um, so, so you work with grad students and college students, what sort of advice would you give to a recent college graduate who is interested in a career either as an executive or in leadership or, or even in retail? I think the, the advice is, is the same as we give the, the, the new CEOs, is write your retirement speech, or even better, write your eulogy. And I know my good friend John Donahoe, who is now the CEO of Nike, did this when he graduated, and he's always kept it. And I understand he goes back to it every year. And it's, it's hard, you know. You know, I have uh, children, they're between the ages of uh, 26 and 34. Early in your adult life, you don't necessarily know everything, but try to write it and see what journey you want to be on and, and how you want to be remembered. That would be one thought. Quite interesting. And our final question, what do you know about the world of leadership and executive management today that you wish you knew a couple of decades ago when you were first getting started? Well, there's so much <laughs> over the, 
the years, I think uh, it has to do with, you know, profits being an outcome, not the goal. It's about the importance of looking at, uh, at drivers of, uh, of performance. It's about, you know, my role as a leader is not uh, to be the smartest person in the room, but to create the right environment. Not about being perfect. Nobody's perfect. And I think that the quest for, maybe I'll finish with this, the quest for perfection, you know, can be very dangerous, can be evil, right? Because if you're, if you're trying to be perfect, uh, guess what? You're not going to be successful. You're going to be incredibly demanding and harsh with people around you because you're going to expect them to be perfect. And so you have to relax and be kind with yourself and others around you and be able to open up and, and share what you're struggling with, understand what they're struggling with, and, and help each other out. That's the, I think, to me, that's a, it's such an important uh, uh, consideration. The quest for perfection uh, can be very dangerous. Be kind. Be kind to yourself. You know, the, during the pandemic, we learned so much, right? Remember when uh, you, we used to fly around, Barry, a long time ago on planes, right? <laughs> and we were told, you know, by the steward or the stewardess, if the oxygen mask comes down, put it on yourself first before you help others. So as we continue to go through challenging times, taking care of yourself as a leader, making sure you meditate, you reflect, you exercise, you ask for help, maybe from your personal board of directors or your best friends. That's the key thing. That's going to be the way that you can then help others. So take care of yourself first. Hmm. Quite, quite interesting. We have been speaking with Hubert Jolie, former chairman and CEO at Best Buy and currently a lecturer at Harvard Business School. Uh, thank you, Hubert, for being so generous with your time. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure and check out any of our previous 376 former discussions that we've had. You can find those at iTunes, Spotify, Acast, wherever you feed your podcast fix. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. You can sign up for my daily reads. You find those at ritholtz.com. Follow me on Twitter at ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff. That helps put these conversations together each week. Charlie Vollmer is my audio engineer extraordinaire. Atika Valbron is my project manager. Uh, Paris Wald is my producer. Michael Batnick is my researcher. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.